Our text this morning is Romans 9, starting in verse 14 through 26. We are continuing where we left off uh, just last week. So before we begin, let me open us uh, in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, uh, for another time we get to open up your word. I pray that as your word goes forth, uh, that you would use it as you see fit, uh, for we can do nothing apart from you. So as uh, this sermon is preached... Bless it uh, by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear a lot about rights these days, don't we? Every time you turn on the news, you hear about some sort of so-called fight for some sort of right, uh, like the so-called right to abortion or the right to marry, so-called the right to marry the same sex or anything like this, what it boils down to is that we want the right to be free from the sovereign God. We want the right to be free from the sovereign God. We want our rights, and we want them now. We have abused freedom, which, the, which is the blessing of God, to the extent that we feel like we should be free from God himself. Freed from his sovereign hand. We've abused freedom to the extent that our hearts want God to take a back seat to our purposes, to our own counsel. We so often object to God's utter sovereignty in salvation. If not doctrinally, then we object to it every time we intentionally sin. And we do so because we want to be the sovereign. Has this not been the problem with man from the very beginning? We need not take for granted the freedom that God has given us in Christ Jesus by refusing to acknowledge the right of our sovereign God. And so our big idea this morning is this, that if our hearts are willing to give God his rights, our objections will cease. Our outline is pretty simple. First, justice belongs to God. And two, blame belongs to us. Justice belongs to God and blame belongs to us. So let's first uh, look at the first few verses here in verses 14 through 18. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 9 through 11, again, is dealing with this question. What about the Jews? So many Jews are rejecting their own Messiah, Mr. Apostle Paul. So how should we think about this? And so Paul is not simply dealing with the issue of predestination that needs to be kept in mind. He is addressing it, uh, but that uh, is not the only issue here. There is a primary topic, which is, has God's word failed since many Jews are rejecting their Messiah? The answer is no. And it's as if Paul says, No, because although I lament over their unbelief, God's promise continues through election. For it is not the children of the flesh, but the children of promise that are the fulfillment of the word of God. And who are the children of promise? Those who the Father elected before the world began. And those individuals in history come uh, come to Christ by faith. And you are not in this category simply because you were born a Jew. Look at Esau and Jacob, for example. Before they had done anything good or bad, before they were born, God chose Jacob over Esau. 
So that's kind of the flow of the argument in Romans 9 until we get to our section in verse 14, where now Paul comes to some common objections, particularly two common objections. The first one being, is there injustice on God's part? We want God to have the final say in many things, don't we? We love the idea that God is in control, that he's going to protect us, that he knows exactly what he's doing. But then when it gets to this issue, we often say, no, 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 that is up to us. God doesn't choose who belong to him. If God chose who belong to him, then that would be unjust. And even if he did do that, that would mean that human beings are not responsible for their actions. This is typically where the discussion goes uh, often when you bring up issues of God's sovereignty and salvation. But what's very ironic is that Paul specifically and explicitly addresses those two objections here in our passage. The first is the question of God's justice. If God chose Jacob over Esau before they had done anything good or bad, solely based on his own purposes and his own counsel, and not based whatsoever on the individuals or anything in them, then wouldn't that make God unjust? You see, that's the question here, and Paul gives his answer. And what we will see is that the Apostle Paul finds a solution in acknowledging God as God and putting our hands over our mouths. If our hearts are willing to give God his divine rights, our objections will cease. He has these rights whether we like it or not. He is the great I Am. He is the one who is the one who is unchangeable and infinite, who created the universe by the word of his power. And he knows what he is doing. The apostle uh, takes us now to two Old Testament examples. The first we read this morning from Exodus 33. Uh, This chapter of Exodus takes place right after the golden calf incident, which I'm sure all of you are aware of. And Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law of the Lord, but the people start to wonder where he is. And so they tell Aaron, we don't know where he is, and so we need our own gods. And so Aaron took their gold, he makes a calf, and said, behold, these are the gods who rescued out of the land of Egypt. And this, of course, angers the Lord. And he says, I will not go with you into the promised land. But Moses intercedes, as we read. And he essentially prays the promises of God back to him, which just as an aside is how we often should pray, praying the promises of God back to God. And Moses asks God to go with them because they can't do it without him. And then the Lord says, You have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Moses then asks to see the glory of the Lord. And the Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Notice Moses asks to see God's glory and the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. An essential aspect to the glory of the Lord then is his goodness And notice what he immediately states. I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. In other words, I will do what I will do. I will do what I will do. So an essential aspect of the glory of the Lord is is the sovereignty of God's goodness, you see. God is not a debtor to anyone. 
When he bestows mercy, it is never due to the merit of his creatures. Notice this is Paul's conclusion as well. In verse 16, he quotes the Exodus passage and then states, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God being gracious to Moses and the Israelites is glorious because it reflects the goodness of his glory. But how does this answer the question? Is there injustice on God's part if he chooses some not based on works or anything in them? And the answer is God is God, and he will do what he wills and not and will not give an account to anyone and is not required to give an account to anyone because he is God. And the Apostle Paul then points to where God himself says, Exodus 33, God is essentially saying, I have this right, and you will not question me. In Exodus 33, this statement is a reminder to Moses that God is showing mercy on Israel, not solely based on Moses' intercession ultimately, although that was the means that was utilized by God. It's also not the goodness of Israel why God is showing mercy. God is showing mercy because he decided to. For he is God, and he has kingly rights that we must acknowledge. And he decided to show mercy on Israel. Our objections will cease if we acknowledge God's rights as the great I Am, as the one who has mercy on whomever he wills. Uh, Matthew Henry makes a great point. He says, God's mercy endures forever because the reason of it is fetched from within himself. Therefore, his gifts and callings are without repentance. They're irrevocable. In other words, you can trust that God's mercy is unceasing because the origin of it is within God himself. You see. And not in you. And so his mercy cannot be revoked. And this is good news. You see, if it's ultimately up to God, then you can rest easy. Then you can be at peace. When a father is out of town... No one in the house sleeps well, right? No one in the house sleeps well. But our Heavenly Father is always in town. He is always in town. And He set His love upon you before the foundation of the world. And His love is going nowhere. Because it originates in Him. And not something you have done. Not because you were smarter, and so you chose to believe the gospel not because you are more sensitive to the things of God than someone else, but the origin of it is in God himself. And now in verses 17 through 18, he quotes from Exodus 9, when the Lord spoke to Pharaoh through Moses, saying that the Lord raised up Pharaoh for his own purposes, and Paul concludes that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is utterly sovereign, and he does what he pleases. Now, this biblical truth sometimes confuses us. Paul, one chapter later, says, How are people to believe unless someone preaches? And so faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. How can we explain this? Well, it's like this. There is the question of how, and the question of why. The fundamental question, why. And both of those are two slightly different questions. I will explain. If we ask the question, how... Someone comes to faith, we can answer. Someone shared the gospel with them, and they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They chose Christ, and they were saved. The question we are dealing with 
is the fundamental root question of why. And the most fundamental reason why someone comes to faith is because God chose to have mercy on them. That's the point of our passage. God is the first cause, but not in such a way that destroys the will of the creature. We do what we want to do. And so when the text says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it is not by any means saying that Pharaoh was this good, awesome man, and God came and turned him into a beast. No, not what it's saying. Rather, God, since God doesn't owe anyone grace, if he owed it, it wouldn't be grace, God simply let Pharaoh do what he wanted to do. He re- God removed his hand of restraint and used him for his own purposes in regards to his people. For the Lord does as he pleases. Listen to the words of Psalm 33. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord will stand forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. See, the Lord is king, and as king, he has the right to do as he pleases. And this is just and right. So is there is there any injustice on God's part? No, for he is justice. I went to this birthday dinner years ago, um, six or seven years ago, and a, theolo- a theological discussion ensued, and so did much debate. And one fellow said, you may have heard this before, one fellow said, God had a choice, and the devil had a choice, and I broke the tie. You may have heard that. But let me ask you, is it just for you, is it just, is it right, for you and the devil to have the same right as God? Notice also that this man had as, uh, thought he had as many rights as God in this matter. Does that attitude and idea fit with what Paul is arguing here in this passage, as we have read? Absolutely not. It is God's choice, ultimately. For Paul says in verse 18, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Ultimately, acknowledging this is important for the Christian life, because it is completely humbling. The flesh hates it, because it gives all the glory to God and extinguishes all human boasting. And now in light of this doctrine, we can and must still say that justice belongs to God. For he is just, and this is something we can always trust. And now as we will see that in light of this doctrine, we can and also must still say that blame belongs to us. So let's draw our attention to verses 19 through 26, where the second objection is listed. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God chooses men solely based on his own will, and it's not based upon something within the creature, how does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? You see the objection, I hope. You've probably heard this objection from others, or maybe have this objection yourself. But if God is utterly sovereign, how are we still to blame? How does the Apostle Paul choose to answer? His first answer 
is who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Verse 20. This reminds me very much of Job when he questions God and God answers Job, saying, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job. Tell me if you have understanding. He goes on to say, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? These are the questions that God is asking Job. God is saying to Job, Who are you to question me? Did you create the world? And when we read so clearly in Scripture that God is sovereign in salvation, that God chooses Jacob over Esau, that he predestines us before the world began, and that he has mercy on whomever he pleases, we so often question the text or question God. But who are we to answer back to God, the Apostle Paul asks. If our hearts would give him our rights, his rights rather, then our objections would cease. We will have much more peace when we stop fighting and acknowledge God's utter sovereignty. Paul then goes to the analogy of the potter and the clay. His point is clear. Doesn't God have the right to do what he pleases, as the potter has the right over the clay? And then in verses 22 through 23, listen to this. He says, What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. And so we learn then that God desired to show his wrath and power. Why? To showcase the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, the ones prepared beforehand for glory. Don't you see the concept of the goodness of God's glory coming back in the text? The point is God endures with the wicked for the sake of the elect, the ones whom he set his love upon before the foundation of the world. And this is glorious, as he says in verses 25 and 26. This is gloriously not just people from among the Jews, but also from the Gentiles who have been brought in. God endures with the wicked for the sake of those he is saving, Paul is saying, in Christ, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. For he, the sovereign Lord, is deserving of worship, and one day the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the good news that the sovereign God is bringing about. And so how does verse 19 through 26 answer the objection? Ultimately, the answer is, God has the right to do as he pleases as God. He has the right to choose Jacob over Esau, and you are still responsible for your actions, even if you can never fully reconcile these two things. So cover your mouth, Paul's saying, essentially. Cover your mouth. Give God his rights. He can be trusted. Why? We know he is justice. He is justice. He can only do what is right and just. The judge of the earth does what is right. And so if this is the case that he chooses uh, individuals before the foundation of the world, then you can trust that it is just because the just God did it. 
And so God desiring to be glorified through his mighty power and wrath and his mercy, grace, and love is just because this is what the just God has done. We don't even know what justice is apart from God. So who are we to question God's justice if this is what he has done? For surely it is just. Here's what I want you to see, that God's sovereignty in every area of life is utterly vital because our flesh wants to hold on to its autonomy. But the only autonomous will is God's will. This was the issue from the beginning in the garden. Adam and Eve wanted to live completely autonomous, apart from God. They wanted essentially to be their own gods, and we know how that turned out. Christian, the Bible is teaching very clearly that God is free to choose whom he saves. And it also says that the judge of the earth will do what is right. Don't you want to be, don't you want a God who is utterly in control, given that he is the only one who is perfectly just and righteous, and we are not? Who do we want to trust? The God who knows all things, who is unchangeable, who is infinite, perfect and only good, in fact, the fountain of all good, or ourselves, a sinful creature who is subject to change. You see, if the choice to follow Christ was up to us, I submit to you that none of us would choose Christ due to sin. Brothers and sisters, acknowledge God's rights and humble yourself before Him. If you do, all of our objections will cease. We should bow the knee of our hearts and profess with the Apostle Paul and God Himself that he has the right to have mercy on whomever he wills and to harden whomever he wills. God has proven himself to be trustworthy. Let's believe him at his word, even if we can't completely wrap our heads around it. You are completely responsible for your actions, for you do what you want to do, and God is free to choose who are his. As verse 21 says, doesn't the potter have right over the clay. The only reason to not give God his full rights in this matter, at least for many, is because you somewhere in your heart still want a little bit of glory. But seeking glory for yourself will end up being in vain if you give God all the glory he promises one day to glorify you, which is a beautiful thing. And that's the goodness of his glory, you see. That's how gracious our God is. That's how merciful our God is. And so as Paul ends this section in Romans 11, he ends it with doxological praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And this is what we are left to say when we consider a doctrine like election. If you acknowledge God's rights, Christian, he will free you with an unfathomable inner peace and freedom, knowing that he, the God of all the world, who only does what is just and right, is in control and knows what he is doing. Do you acknowledge all of God's rights? For the potter has rights over the clay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ and ask you as we have considered your utter sovereignty and that we would leave here 
having a great inner peace, knowing that you are in control and know what you're doing. And I pray, Father, that uh, as we go forth from here, we would seek to serve you with our whole beings. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.